starting last, you know, September when we started uh, this kind of term, term of, of uh, Sunday night on Wednesday night on Crow, we said we're doing the pastorals, 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy. In that order, 1 Timothy was the first one written, then, then Titus and 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is the last book that Paul wrote. Um, Paul wrote this book when he was in prison in Rome, not the one you see in Acts, but there was another prison. Obviously, he mentions you know, being imprisoned. And it's the one that the early church fathers said that he would die from. Oh, a lot of people, and there's always debate over you know, the parts of the early church that it's not just obviously written about in Scripture. And, and there's always new theories that come about. And I get asked all the time, did you see this documented need? Did you see this series? Did you see that? And 99% of the time I said, no, I didn't. Because a lot of times, I just, it's just not good scholarship. I mean, I saw something the other day. Somebody said, a lot of scholars don't believe blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, that's a minority of scholars don't believe that. Most believe the truth. And you just quoted or you sourced the ones that are going to hell. I mean, let's put it bluntly. I mean, nothing else to tell you. So sometimes I think, you know, we overcomplicate things. Um, we know from the end of the book of Acts that at the end of about 60, about 60 AD, you know, Paul's in prison, but he, he gets released at some point. The other church fathers talked about it. We know from Timothy first, second, and in, in Titus, that he, he then did some things. He went to Crete, left Titus there. He went to Ephesus, left Timothy there. That's how he wrote 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. He went to Philippi, and he wrote 1 Timothy and, and Titus probably from there. And then he did some other things, and we don't know what he did. There's, we don't know, but there's all sorts of speculation. I know many excellent conservative scholars think he finally made it to Spain. One of the church fathers said he made it to the furthermost western regions of Europe or the Roman Empire, I should say, and that would have been Spain, unless they were talking about something else. Maybe he made it to England. Some think he made it to England. Some think he just hung around, you know, the area of the Mediterranean Sea. Whatever happened, at some point he got rearrested, and he ends up uh, in the persecutions of Nero that began really in earnest. I mean, they began hard in about 64. And one of the other church fathers says that, you know, both Peter and Paul were uh, killed at the, about the same, at close to the same time, uh, Peter would have been crucified. Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, was beheaded. He writes 2 Timothy to Timothy from prison. Now, prison life is different than here. I mean, in his first Roman imprisonment, he was under house arrest. He had to pay for you know, his own place to live, and that way he could be relatively, relatively free, kind of like someone today with an ankle monitor. You can't leave the house, but you got it there. Um, you know, they didn't have the prison system we did. If you, know, you could be in prison for a short time, for a little while. They weren't going to keep you there usually a long term. They may have places where they would put you long term in prison. You'd be better off dead if that was the case. Most of the time, they would kill you. You would pay a fine. You'd be sold into slavery. You'd be forced to go to war. So, certain things would happen. But here he was most likely in jail and uh, facing the inevitability of death. And uh, he writes to his protege, to Timothy. We really come in contact with Timothy in uh, second, I mean, book of Acts in the 17th chapter, uh, excuse me, the 16th chapter, verses one uh, through three, where Paul's going back to Asia Minor and he's in Lystra and in Derby and he sees Timothy. It, possibly he knew him from his first missionary journey and maybe Timothy was saved there. Timothy had a Jewish mama and grandmama. He had a Greek daddy and uh, probably his daddy probably wasn't saved, but his mama and grandmother were saved. We'll see that in a minute. And uh, along the way, he went with Paul. Paul did circumcise him since he was half Jewish. And, uh, and the way they went, and he, and he was probably, he was probably the one guy Paul mentored the most. You know, he was close to so many people, Sylvanius, Luke, Titus, 
um, others. Uh, but man, it, it, just, it just appears that, that Timothy was the guy. And if ever there was a guy that was going to kind of fill Paul's shoes and no one could fill Paul's shoes, uh, Timothy was as close as there was. When you, you, ought, you ought to sometimes sit down and just read 2 Timothy. It doesn't take 15 minutes to read it. And when you read it, don't read it like all the other letters of Paul where you're constantly trying to learn something. Read it from a guy who was older, you know, 65-ish, which doesn't seem all that old, to be honest, but you get the picture. Writing to a guy who was youngish, and the old guy knows he's about to die. And he's got his young guy there on, on, on Ephesus handling problems. What he says to sometimes people talk about with Paul, you know, kind of harsh with Timothy or this about that. He wasn't harsh. He was just honest with him. And read through that book. And you get to that last chapter. And Paul says, everybody's left me. Luke's here. Go get John Mark. You and Mark come to me. Because I'm about to die. And I want you guys here. This is a phenomenal book when you understand it's the last thing he wrote. It's the last thing he wrote. And in this book, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of his heart. There's a lot of his feelings. He is connecting to this young man who still has to, before he comes to Paul, he still has to solve a couple of problems. And so it's a powerful, powerful way that Paul ends his ministry. And so we pick it up. And he says, this is Paul. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Now, it's a standard greeting. And Paul would, and normally these pastoral letters, you say, well, it was an awful formal way to write Timothy. And yeah, but this letter was going to be read also to all the group at Ephesus. So everybody was going to read this letter. But I just want to make it clear, he was an apostle. Just, just like Peter, just like John and those guys were. There's always, you know, there's always those people that want to debate whether Paul was an apostle or not. You know, it's kind of like, eh, it says he was an apostle, you know? The criteria for an apostle had to be that you saw the resurrected Jesus. He did, Acts 9. And you were called by Jesus. He was, Acts 9. I mean, and, and so he met all the qualifications. But if, listen, if Paul's not an apostle, there ain't no such thing as an apostle. Because nobody took Jesus and put it in written form in a way that shaped and molded the church. Now, Peter was phenomenal. And Peter kicked the whole thing off in the books of Act, book of Acts. He's got a couple of letters to him. He probably was the, the, the driving force that Mark quoted and used in his gospel. And Peter was phenomenal. But Paul was at a whole different level. And Paul took Jesus. And he put him down in such a way as we could understand the teachings, not just of Jesus, but of doctrine. He, Paul is the one that left the lasting doctrinal impressions upon us. And regardless of your doctrinal position in the world of Christianity, eventually it comes from Paul. Now, I know eventually it comes from Jesus. I always got that. But it comes from Paul. He was an apostle, the one who was sent by Christ Jesus because of the promise of life that was given in Christ Jesus, the life that was his. He says to Timothy, my beloved son. I mean, this is a letter of endearment. He says, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, mercy, peace. Very common in writings, grace and peace. Mercy is also added. Grace is, is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Peace 
is a result of both. We are at peace with God. I have grace and mercy. I am at peace with God. And you, all, you always want to be at peace with God. I mean, there, there are times in life, you know, where I have a little turmoil and conflict, and I struggle, and I feel sometimes I'm struggling, and, and I'm struggling with God. You know, I don't ever like those feelings. But when I know that everything is right with me and God, I mean, that's a cool place to be. And you don't always get that place. You don't always quite get there. But when you're there and you just take that breath and think, God, you and me, right now, we're as good as we've ever been. That's what you want in life. And, it, and it's, you can be there at times. And it's a good place for you to strive to be. Because the opposite is not being at peace with God. You don't want to be there, man. I thank God. And thanksgiving, being thankful were common in letters. I thank God whom I serve. That word serve is the word used for like a technical term, even in serving and worship, but it's a really technical term. I serve him. Get this, this is cool, with a clear conscience. The way my forefathers did. Now, you know, the forefathers, it, 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 you know, he's talking about Jewish forefathers. And we don't know for sure who he's talking about, but there was a sense that he's going back to the guys of faith, the men and women of faith, but here you know the men of the Old Testament. The Abrahams, the Moses, Davids. I'll just finish reading the life of David, his story. Monday, you know, finished up 2 Samuel, then I started into 1 Kings. And I thought to myself, my gosh, my namesake messed up a lot. I got a sermon about um, working him on when we do family in, in, in May. There's this series on the family called The Big Messy. And I, th I actually think, I think it's maybe the Mother's Day sermon. I think it's that or the next one. He, he, he messed up a bunch. And then he was a good man after God's own heart. Can, can you imagine being an adulterer and a murderer and so arrogant? that people die because of your arrogance. And God says, but you're after my heart, David. You're after my own heart. He, he had a clear conscience. It didn't mean Paul that didn't fail, didn't sin. But he could look and, and, and he could say, my hands are clean. You know, in the scripture, it talks about raising up holy hands. I know for a long time, Baptists, we never raised our hands unless you had to go to the bathroom. And it was just, if I remember growing up, if someone raised their hands like, charismatic. They got to get them out of here. Next thing you know, they'll speak in tongues, roll down an aisle, and we'll all be going to hell when it's over. And now it happens all the time. And, you know, I don't, I don't think people know what it means. You lift your hands up. The purpose of lifting your hands up isn't because you're super holy. It's to say, I'm clean. My hands are clean. My life is clean. And I worship God. Now, I'll never do it. My wife will raise hands. Someone say, will you ever raise hands? I say, no. And the only reason I don't is because there are people before me who influenced me that if they thought I raised hands, would roll over in their grave and their bones would rattle. And at the second coming and the resurrection, the first thing to do would find me out and say, what were you doing raising your hands in a Baptist church? So I never do it. But sometimes in my mind, I do it. It's my way of rebelling. I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Timothy, I pray for you. 
Now, it doesn't mean he constantly means he's never, he doesn't ever stop praying. It means whenever he prays, Timothy's a part of his prayers. When he prays in the morning, he prays at night. You know, there, I, there are people in my life that sometimes, there, there are people in my life I pray for just about every time I pray. There are people that I, you know, I'll pray for about once or twice a week. And then there are people I'll pray for once in a while. And there are people I just don't care to pray for ever. But, you know, but, but there are some people, I mean, there's some people in our lives, you know, my, my, my family, my daughter, you know. It's funny. I found out now my, my daughter got married a couple weeks ago. She called me up on the phone. You know, I was on my vacation. She called me up on the phone. I said, baby girl, are you married yet? Cause I knew she, and she said, Dad, I told you I'd call you before I got married. I said, okay. So what's going on? Well, we're going to the courthouse to get married. <laughs> so I thought I'd call I said, okay, I guess that qualifies. I don't pray for her as much when she got married. I mean, I pray for her a lot, but I was like, I don't have to pray. It's somebody else's problem. <laughs> I mean, the guy that married her, good guy. I like him. Uh, when, when the funeral, he was that big guy that was here. You know, I just, I, I said, congratulations. And uh, she's your problem. And there's no returns on that girl. She's yours forever. But I, you know, I don't, have to, I don't worry about praying. I mean, I pray for her, but it's not the same. I don't worry about it anymore. She's somebody else's problem. But there are still people I pray, you know, and, and there are people in there, there's, there are people from my past and my life and I went to school with, and they're struggling with things. And so right now, I pray for them every day. And maybe when their problem and, their, and the situation gets better, I won't pray for them every day. You don't have to pray for everybody every day all the time. You really don't. But there ought to be people in your life. There ought to be people in your life. You're like, yeah, I need to pray for them. I need to pray for them every day. Not because you got to beg God to do something. But because it's your way of sharing with God, they matter to me. They're important to me. They're so important to me, God, I'm just going to pray for them just about every day. And so you, you do that. He said, Timothy, I'm praying. Timothy. And there's some, and I don't tell, always tell people I pray for them, but sometimes I'll say to someone, man, I want you to know I'm praying for you. I sent someone a note the other day. I said, hey, I know what you're going through. I'm praying for you. Just want you to know that. I don't make a big deal about it. I don't use flowery language. I just, I'm praying for you. And it matters to them. It matters to them because of our relationship in the past. It matters to them because of what I do now. And it matters to them because of what I went through. People like to know you're praying for them. Except for me, evidently, I don't like to know what I've been told. Longing, he says, to see you. Get this. I long to see you. Even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. I don't know when Timothy had tears. Maybe probably when they parted. When Paul had to go. He said, man, Timothy, you're my son in the Lord. I wish I could see you. Notice what he says in verse 5. I am mindful. I'm aware of the sincere faith within you. That word sincere means to be genuine, to not waver. Someone asked me one time, what's the secret to be successful in ministry? I said, you've got to be sincere. You've got to be genuine. And when you can fake that, you'll make it very well in life. <laughs> got to have that sincerity. He says it's the faith that's within you. It's not just the faith that exists. It's the faith that consumes you. Your faith in Jesus the faith as we teach it, the faith that you live your life. He said, it first dwelt in your grandmama, Lois. 
And then your mother, Eunice. I had an Aunt Eunice. That's a country name, man. Central Texas, up around London, Texas. My grandmother and my grandfather buried in London, Texas. That's like 70 people live in this town and 200 live in the cemetery. They don't live there, but they reside there. <laughs> this is country. I mean, this, your mama and your grandmother, and I know and I'm sure it's doing you as well. When he says, I'm sure, it's not like, well, I'm sure it is. It's like, I know you got it. Well, of course he knows he's got it. He took him way back about 15, 16 years ago. And he took him with him in ministry. He said, for this reason, I remind you, to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. My hands. Now, there's a lot of debate about, you know, spiritual gifts are always a complicated thing, and there's a lot of misunderstanding. From time to time I do this. I'm going to take just a second here to do this about spiritual gifts. I get asked about it all the time. Never, ever, ever, ever take a spiritual gift test to determine your spiritual gifts. Think about it. Gifts come from the Holy Spirit of God. And you're taking a written exam written by some knuckleheads who have predetermined what are the right questions to ask in order for you to determine your gifts. And I'm harsh on this. I hate those things. I can, I've taken, I take every, every so often I'll take one just for grins. I can make it sing whatever tune I want. I know some of you take them, that's fine. I got it. I don't mean to be that harsh, but then again, I am. Here's how you determine the spiritual gift. And, and, and spiritual gifts, and see, here's the thing. The only gifts ever mentioned or in Rome, they ever put in there are from Romans and Corinthians. Do you really think those are the only spiritual gifts that ever existed in all of Christian history? Well, they're the only ones in the Bible, okay? You think that's the only ones that have ever existed? That the Holy Spirit, and remember, they don't even have the same list. What if the church at Corinth and the church at Rome, what if they didn't know what the other church gifts were? The church at Rome only had some. The church at Corinth had some, some overlapped, but they didn't all have, didn't all have the exact same thing. How do, you, how, do you, how do you make all that work? There's no gift of music. I've heard people say, well, there's no spiritual gift in music. Really? Mike, you agree with that? No, sir. I don't agree with that. You know why? I was married 40 years with the woman that had a gift in music. You know? So I, I, you can't tell me. Sometimes when she sang, I probably didn't need to preach. Don't say Amen. <laughs> Well, of course that's a gift. How foolish are you? And depending on whether you're charismatic or not, the charismatic gifts may be in the list, may not be in the list. So how do you know what your spiritual gifts are? I don't think it's that hard, really. I think there's just two real questions for a follower of Jesus. That's growing in your faith. Grow in your faith. Read your Bible. Pray. If you're not maturing in your faith, you're never going to figure it out. But here's what, here's what I do. Here's me. This is David. What do I like to do and what am I good at? There are certain things I like to do I'm not any good at, so it's not a gift. I mean, a lot of people like to sing, but they're not real good at it. They're not gifted. Trust me. We know if you're gifted. We listen to you. We know if you're gifted or not. And there are some things I'm good at I don't like to do. I'm really good at administration, administrative stuff. I can do administration all day long. I don't like it. It's not a gift. It's just a drudgery. 
But I like. I like studying the Word of God and sharing it with people. Semi-decent at it. And I like giving a church direction and guidance. Semi-decent at that. That's pretty much it. I don't have any. I'm a two-trick guy, man. That's all I got. <laughs> we were someone the other day, and, and I meet people sometimes, and I'm like, I can just tell. And we got a lady in our connect group. I love that lady in our connect group. Man, she is just bubbly and friendly, and when we have connect group at her house, and both the ladies whose houses we have connect group at, uh, used to have it at mine, and I'm out of the rotation. Thank goodness for that. But we go to their houses. I mean, they're, they... You can just tell they got a gift for that, of having people over and making everybody feel at home and welcome, whether you call it hospitality, I don't know what it's called, but they're just so good at that. And we got people, we got people at our church that are so good at meeting folks. You know how important that is when someone walks through the door of that church and they meet people at the welcome center at the door and they're so friendly and nice and they meet and they make them feel welcome and they get them to the right place at the right time. And man, they just, they just feel like I belong here. You got people working with our kids. You don't think that's a gift to work with them people over there? My goodness. So Paul says, not that gift. That gift's not transferable. I couldn't, I couldn't take, oh, Noah here, I'm picking on you, Noah. I couldn't take Noah here and lay my hands on him and give him my gifts. I wouldn't even try. That's not what Paul's saying. But here, the idea of the gift is that Paul set him aside. He said the gift that flamed that within you, the opportunity, the gift, the grace to be at Ephesus. I put you there to fix that problem. You go fix it. That's what he's saying. And, And people know that. And recognize that in you, Timothy. That's your job. You know, all of us have things that God wants us to do. We need to go do those. And listen, I say this all the time. Every job in this church matters. On Sunday, before anybody ever hears me preach, or whoever preaches, they've they've dealt with parking lot people. They can mess the whole thing up, man. Put them in the wrong parking spot, we're done. Cause an accident, we're through. They get people at the doors. Welcome center. You got children. Man, you're over there in Upstreet or Wombolin or maybe the youth, and you got to get that check-in right. And you, you have questions. You don't want a grumpy person over there. Then you come in here and you hear the music. And all of that has happened before anyone ever hears me preach. They've already decided whether or not they're coming back to First Baptist Church. All I can do is mess it up. All I can do is take someone who says, I'm coming back there, and they hear the message and say, no, I'm not. No one's going to sit there and say, I'm not coming back to this place, and then I preach and say, oh, yeah, I am now. Never works that way. Everything every one of us do does did, whatever, matters. And what you do matters far more than what I do because they've already made their mind up by the time I get my shot at them. Now, 
you're still going to pay me what you pay me to do that. And you're going to do what you do for free in a cup of coffee. Don't get confused. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity. We get this. But of power and love and discipline. Of power. The word power comes from the Greek word dunamis. It means raw ability. He just, he just gives us a spirit of power. And then he, he gives us love. And that word for love, agape, is just that self-giving love. And the word for discipline, to be studious, that's what he's given us to work in people's lives. Timothy, you've got a tough task there. Got those false teachers still. He's going to mention some of them. We'll see them next week. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner. Some think that Timothy may have been ashamed of the fact that his mentor Paul was in prison. And here he was at Ephesus trying to solve all their problems. And the guy who commissioned him was in prison. And they're probably thinking, nah. Paul said, it's going to be tough, Timothy. You can't be timid. You got to be tough. But here's the thing. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. It's his testimony. It's his witness. That's the word, martyros, witness. It's his witness you're giving. Don't be ashamed of me as prisoner. I'm an apostle. You know why I'm in a prisoner? Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. I am a prisoner not because I am weak or failed, but because of the gospel. I'm in prison because I preach Jesus. And I preach Jesus Christ crucified. That's why I'm here, Timothy. You join me in my suffering. Not that he wants to be in prison, but he says, you embrace my message. Because it is the message of the Lord. It's the gospel according to the power of God. And that power of God, once again, is dunamis, the might. The gospel is always connected to Jesus. He is there for preaching Jesus. It is the Jesus message that has the full power of God behind it. Notice you saved us and called us with the holy calling. God saved us. He called us. The calling was holy, not according to our works, according to his own purpose and his grace, which was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity. For all eternity, God has always planned to do this. This is not something God thought up along the way. Do you realize that God is not making this up as we go along? Some people teach that. It's called open theism, that God can't know the future. Then how can you trust a God who doesn't know the outcome? Sometimes I make things up as I go along. I do it a lot on Wednesday nights, sometimes on Sundays. That's how I say things sometimes I shouldn't say. I have to filter those out. God never makes things up as he goes along. But he has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death, that spiritual eternal death, and brought life, that's eternal life, in immortality to life through the gospel. We're going to stop there. So here's what he's saying. You're preaching Jesus. I'm in prison for Jesus. That's our message. It's by the grace of God. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But by his grace, that's what we have. There's power in that message. It's the power that transforms lives. 
You do believe, don't you, that the power of the gospel of Jesus can transform the lives of people around us, don't you? It's not us telling them, change your life. Here's, this, is, this, this never works. Me telling a lost person, change your life, there's no power in it. Me telling a lost person, you need Jesus, and he'll change your life, there's power. Why do I want to change their life? I don't always like some of the things they do. Sometimes I like them, but I don't like what they do or how they live, but I still like them. Man, I don't, the power to change is Jesus. So here's what we do. We share Jesus. And we say it all the time. Jesus will change their lives. Get people to Jesus as fast as you can. Let him do what he does. It's not my job. Now, is it my job to say some things are right or some things are wrong? Well, certainly it's my job. But really, when all is said and done, I can't do what Jesus can do. So he is brought to life in immortality to light. He has made it visible. That which was hidden is now seen. And the reason we want to share Jesus with them is because in sharing Jesus, we bring to light, we make known the life and the power that changes their life. And if we will make known the life and the power that will change their life, we've done our job. And that's all we can do. A lot of cool things happen in our church. A lot of times you don't get to know about it, but we do as a staff all the time. And so I'll close with this tonight. Not too long ago, a guy came up to me. And he told me, last year, so bad for me. And I started coming here, and I started hearing about Jesus. And Jesus changed my life. I didn't change his life. You didn't change his life. But Jesus changed his life. But he came here. And that's what we want. We go to them, yes, but don't kid yourself. They come here. Let's be sure then that we make sure they hear Jesus. And that's what Paul's saying when all is said and done. Well, I'm about 30 seconds early, so that's good. It's a good job on my part.